The biggest unknown for me, though, which is like, you know, that that kind of deep down inside, if I had unlimited resources and could do anything, I don't think we ever, I know we didn't, get to the bottom of the true level of interaction between Russia and Trump. Again, as you pointed out early, going back to the 80s. I'm Perry Rogers, and I'm a brand specialist. I'm Ed Borgato, and I'm an investor. And our conversations are about the tension between the head and the heart in the way people make decisions and their point of view on important issues. This is The Head and the Heart. Hey, Ed. Hi, Perry. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. We had a wonderful conversation with a real-life G-man. Yeah, I was uh, really impressed with Peter Strzok. You know, he is a former FBI agent who was in counterintelligence. He worked on Hillary Clinton's email issue. He worked on whether uh, the Trump campaign uh, or Trump associates colluded with or worked with Russian government. And uh, I found him just fascinating to talk to. Yeah, he was he was neck deep in it all. And the things he shared with us about counterintelligence work and how that world works was really, really fun and interesting to listen to. So um, without further ado, let's give him an intro and uh, play the episode. Peter Strzok is a former United States FBI agent. Strzok was the chief of the counterespionage section and led the FBI's investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a personal email server. In June and July of 2017, Strzok worked on Robert Mueller's special counsel investigation into any links or coordination between Donald Trump's presidential campaign and the Russian government. In September 2020, Huffton Miffin Harcourt published Strzok's book, Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. Pete, let's start at the beginning. You were raised outside of the United States, both in Tehran and also in Africa. Um, Mm -hmm. Tell us about that and tell us about what that meant for you as it relates to your appreciation or love of uh, America. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, it was uh, my father was in the military career army officer. And so we moved all over the place, both overseas as well as around the U.S. I don't think by the time I was in high school, I don't think we'd lived in any place longer than about 18 months. Um, so that creates a lot of I mean, it does a lot of things, right? I mean, so as you pointed out, we were were in Iran twice. Um, We were in West Africa in a country called Upper Volta, which became Burkina Faso for about three years. And then we were in Haiti um, when I was actually in high school in the U.S., but would go back and forth there over the summers and holidays. Uh, And then so after he he retired from the military, but then went into international development work. So that's, you know, the overseas aspect of that continued. And I think it did, you know, two big things. The first was, you know, growing up in a military family, there was a sense of um, service to country and the, the, the idea of public service and the idea of not only kind of national defense and a strong national defense, but why, you know, that it was important to serve and, you know, kind of the ideals of what the United States stood for. And of course, thinking about that and seeing that juxtaposed with, in many cases, environments with authoritarian regimes. I mean, you know, the Shah was in uh, Iran, ended up being a horribly repressive regime, even though it was certainly an ally of the United States um, from a strategic perspective for decades and decades. And then similarly in West Africa, there was a lot of turnover. Um, We, I think, had either two or three legitimate coups while I was there, a couple more coup attempts, uh, and varying degrees of people who were 
good and not at all good in terms of prime ministers or presidents or whatever title they chose. And then certainly in Haiti at the tail end of the Duvalier years, just a horribly corrupt, oppressive regime. And so throughout all this, not only was there kind of a perspective of, you know, being a military and army brat, you know, believing in the U S and the, the army and military service, but at the same time, American sort of the, the idea of, American democracy and what that meant and the strengths of it. And it was also, I mean, I think that that isn't, it isn't nearly so black and white in the sense that I think a lot of, you know, I'm not, I have a complex relationship with the idea of American exceptionalism. I mean, I do think the American experiment is extraordinary. Uh, I think it's the best, despite all its flaws, the best that the world has out there. Um, but at the same time, I think that can lead to a certain arrogance and, what we perceive as, you know, or can perceive as the greatness of America and not only overselling our strengths and ignoring our weaknesses, but also ignoring what other nations, what other cultures do really well. And so sometimes I think, you know, the tendency is to get out there and if you beat your chest too much about what it means to be an American, you can really do a disservice to a lot of the goodness um around the world and so having being able to hold all those kind of thoughts in your head at the same time because you're seeing it on a daily basis certainly drove me to public service i went through georgetown on an rcc scholarship and then you know loved the army but knew i didn't want to make a career of it but wanted to continue public service and then went from the army into into uh, the fbi you know your, your point about uh, american exceptionalism uh, is fascinating and something that Ed and I have talked a lot about with uh, a lot of really smart people who focused on this. And, you know, it seems to me that our belief in our exceptionalism actually undermines our ability to be exceptional because we start to think that there's magical borders. And if you're born inside these borders, there's something special about you. And it doesn't recognize that what's been great about us is that so many people have worked so hard and traveled so far to be a part of this community. And when we believe that, no, it's only if you're born inside this, that you're special, that you're magical, that we have undermined our ability to be great. And you, you know, you saw it in Reagan's last speech where he talks about the importance of immigration and how much a large percentage of our population has lost that in your travels abroad and your experience abroad. Um, have you, you know, you had to see a lot of people's love of what America stood for. And do you feel that it, to a certain extent, there's a large part of our country that simply literally doesn't get what does make us exceptional? I think that's right. I think, you know, one of the most interesting things to see, you know, people assume, well, everybody, you know, wants to come to America. And certainly a lot of people do. And I do think, you know, the, the immigration experience is part of the core American experience. It's what has made us, given us the strengths and the unique character that we have. And that always is a little bit at odds with whoever has and holds power at the time. I mean, people accumulate wealth and power in, in the U.S. and anybody coming in represents a potential threat to that. And so there is a tension there. I think there is a tendency on some parts of, it's probably not just America, but certainly from an American perspective, when you look abroad to say, well, you know, people want to come to America and it's not necessarily that it could be like, I want the democratic ideals that America stands for, but I want it for my country. And, you know, and from an intelligence perspective, you know, as, as a, as a career counterintelligence guy, so much of what we were focused on doing was combating, you know, hostile foreign nations, but, and to do that, you have to recruit people. You have to get people to work with you. 
And for some people, it was very enticing to say, hey, look, you know, work with us and we'll set something up where, you know, we can bring you to America. Eventually we can bring out your family. We can get your kids a great Western education. And that worked for some, but for a lot of folks, that wasn't what motivated them. They didn't say, I want to come to America. They said, I want to bring American ideals of democracy here, whether that's the PRC, wherever it might be around the world. And so some of that is, you know, getting past this again, this, this idea that yes, you know, we are a magnificent country. I, I would, you know, pick no other country ahead of America. If I could be any citizen of the world, U.S., 100% of the time. But when you are looking at what people admire about America overseas, again, my experience from an Intel perspective, the idea of coming to America was strong, but equally strong was that ideal and, you know, the, the concepts under which we sort of organize our sort of government civic dynamic is an exportable thing, is something that people abroad look to and say, I want that here. Um, and I think we've we, we lost some of that. I mean, there's a moral authority that comes with that because what they want is freedom of expression. What they want is one person, one vote. What they want is freedom of religion and freedom to, you know, marry whoever they want. And so, you know, that isn't, you know, yeah, I can come to America and do that. But, you know, if, if we are to, that appeal comes with a certain moral authority. And I think we lost some of that over the past four years. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how fast we get that back um, from a sort of statecraft perspective. But it's a, um, it was an interesting thing to see and, and is, and you know, what, what America means, um, and how aggressive we should be right. Uh, in exporting that, you know, if we look and we say, Oh, you know, Saddam Hussein, the, you know, the, the poor, horrible, oppressed people of fill in the blank, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, wherever, you know, we need to go in there and shake up this government, install it. Well, you know, maybe I think, you know, those ideals. Yes. I, I think there are universal human rights that are, embodied best in a democracy, but there's a, there's a really delicate balance before you get to the point where you are exporting that in a way that probably isn't ideal. I think there's a lot of good examples to, to, to prove the point that exporting those sort of things is better done by example rather than trying to go over. And somebody in those countries needs to be Thomas Jefferson. We can't do it for them. You know, we, we can only set the example in, 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 in most instances. You know, I'm interested in, I mean, there's so much I'm interested in about your career because, you know, your book kind of, there's a, a, a spy novel aspect to it. You know, the work is so interesting. When you join the FBI, how does one become a counterintelligence officer versus, you know, is that something that you pursued um, specifically or are you selected once you're in the FBI? You know, we think you're suited for this kind of work. You know, how, how, do, how, does, how do you matriculate, you know, in your career into, into that kind of role? And then specifically... You know, you say something so interesting about that work and I, you know, in the book about how you're not always looking to make a case against someone or arrest someone, you know, that's perhaps a, a manipulated individual, as you, as you put it. But part of it is just um, trying to understand what it is that they're giving our adversaries. And you, you might want someone to continue to do that, I guess, for an extended period of time, if it's helpful, because if you know they're mixed up in it, and they don't know that you know that in itself is useful. So uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Um, so I, I wish I could tell you that the, the Bureau was great at taking the resume of everybody that came in and 
figuring out exactly how many sides to this peg and putting it in that many sided hole um, somewhere in the FBI. But as it most of the time as new agents show up in an office, agents are assigned out of Quantico based on which offices have the largest deficit of kind of their funded staffing level against their existing staffing level. So whoever has the biggest gap, they will get the agents coming out of Quantico. And then usually it's okay. You know, you show up and the field offices, all these different investigative programs, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, violent crime, gangs, Medicare fraud, white collar fraud, I mean, just on and on, you know, cyber crimes. And usually, again, the same sort of deal. If somebody is particularly short because somebody's retired or transferred out, that's where people get plugged in. Um, you know, there's some exceptions, right? If you are a, if you have a CPA, you're more than likely going to be placed into something where you're doing some sort of financial crime or some sort of financial analysis aspect to your work. If you have a, you know, you can code, you know, Linux and you can code in Python, you are more than likely these days absolutely going to go into a, um, some sort of cyber squad. Um, you know, if you speak Urdu or, or Arabic, huge chance you're going to work counterterrorism. But in my case, it was, you know, there was a, there was a, um, uh, a staffing opening in counterintelligence at a degree in international affairs. Um, I didn't know, you know, I, I, I was not one of these people who, from the time I was 60, I wanted to be an FBI agent because I was watching, you know, the FBI story or something. It was, I was in the army, uh, Oklahoma city bombing happened. And in the aftermath of the Congress and the FBI kind of looked at the FBI's operations and said, well, you know, you FBI are not really doing a good job with, your analysis of terrorism. It sounds familiar, right? But this is like 1995. And so they said, okay, we're going to give you a bunch. We Congress will give you money to hire about 50 analysts, 25 to work international terrorism, 25 to work domestic terrorism. I was in the army at the time coming up on my four year mandatory sort of obligation based on my RTC scholarship and saw and literally saw an ad in the paper that was, you know, come work at the FBI doing analysis of, of terrorism. And I said, well, that sounds really interesting. So I applied and, you know, went in that way, quickly saw the work of the FBI at that time was very, very agent centric. It still is. But I mean, at that time it was, you know, all the, the, the primary things that were being done, the kind of, you know, the, the idea that if you're in an organization, always try and do what the organization does. If you're in Ford, you know, make cars, you know, there, there are a thousand jobs, but do what the organization does. And for the FBI, that was being an agent. So I applied after about a year of being an analyst to become an agent, got accepted, but not a Quantico. And then, you know, you put down a wish list of where you want to go. But um, I got Boston, which was, I think, my third choice. And when I was up there, you know, got assigned to counterintelligence and fell in love with it and made a career of it. You can move around um, a lot, but it's uh, the thing with counterintelligence work was it was so complex and you know, at least in my mind, it was, you know, the, a feeling of working an extraordinary um, series of adversaries at a, a national level. And again, you know, as you kind of were pointing out in your in the, in the question, it these aren't kind of set pieces that conclude in somebody getting arrested or, you know, you can't make a case against the stockbroker. So they go off. This is something, you know, the Russians have been there for decades. They're going to be there for decades. So are the Chinese. So are, you know, the Cubans or whoever, you know, the Iranians. And so it isn't, if the Russians recruit a CIA officer, yes, of course, we're going to investigate that and try and build a case and prosecute them or turn them back. But it's just as likely, you know, the, the Russians, the Chinese will always have intelligence officers either stationed here in the embassy or traveling through, and they will be doing that when our children are, you know, retiring. And so the idea of like, not only are you do, going to some set piece that's resolved, but if you can get a hold of 
you know, the Chinese Foreign Intelligence Service thinks they recruited somebody in a U.S. government agency, and we actually are able to take control of that. And they think they've got a really great source. But in reality, we're just sitting there giving them material to feed back to the Chinese. We're watching the questions the Chinese are asking them. We're watching the equipment the Chinese are giving them to talk. We're watching how they travel in the meetup. We're watching how they pay them. All these things go to, you know, getting under, getting behind the curtain on the other side. And, you know, successful, what, what constitutes a successful operation can be years, decades. I mean, we've run some great, you know, these are called that sort of idea is what a double agent operation is. And there's some that we've run, you know, successfully for decades. And so that's, a, you know, from an intellectual challenge perspective, it's fascinating work. And, you know, I fell in love with it and, and to this day, love it. Yeah. It's like a chess game where there's never really a checkmate. It's just an ongoing, um, ongoing uh, attempt to tilt the board your way, I guess, as a way of putting it as, as, as a, as a metaphor, you know, because um, it's a persistent, challenge it's a persistent threat it never really ends you know put out one fire here or you end something here there's always an operation going talk about one of the things i think would surprise a lot of americans is that foreign intelligence um uh officers are targeting americans in places elite institutions or places where people who they think might have influence in the future to sort of set up for perhaps maybe um what might be a, a career move in the future for them that puts them in a place where they have sensitive information, you know, and I don't know the tactics and I'd be interested to hear about it to the extent you can talk about it, but I can imagine, you know, loaning a, a, a kid at Harvard, you know, money who's, you know, up against it. And that kid 15 years later or 20 years later is working at the state department, you know, building those kinds of relationships. Talk about how that goes on and, and the real threat that that is. It's a huge set. And, and most foreign nations do that very well. I mean, the American attention span is short and that's true in the government. It's certainly true in the U.S. intelligence community. I mean, I like to think that we, well, I say we, they um, have an ability to kind of look long term, but we don't do it anywhere as well as the Russians and certainly nowhere close to what the Chinese do. And, you know, a great example of that. And, you know, one thing I Bureau let me write about it um, was looking at the way the Russians were taking an illegal couple. And what I mean by illegal is these were cadre officers. These were trained intelligence officers of the KGB, which then became the SVR, Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service. And they got them early on in their lives, straight out of college, gave them assumed identities of what were dead Canadian infants who were of roughly the same age, would have been of the same age had they not died in their youth. And these two Russian spies assumed his identities and began this literally decades long path of going out of Russia, going into Europe, going into Canada, going back to Europe, ultimately, you know, applying for Harvard and getting into the John F. Kennedy School and to get a master's of public affairs and move into the U.S. And this decades long process is all designed to eventually get them to U.S. citizenship. And so while they're at Harvard, while he, Don Heathfield, whose real name was Andrei Bezikov, is sitting there going to class every day with all these other master's students who are similarly like him, you know, youngish, you know, maybe have a few years of professional work, but coming from all around the world and the best and brightest of the U S in their country. And all the while he's taking notes, you know, we go out and Hey, you know, they have great class. It's Thursday night. Let's grab a beer. And, you know, we go out and we find out and we're like, Hey, you know, 
Perry really likes scotch. And, you know, sometimes if we start talking about, you know, baseball, inevitably he'll have too much scotch to drink. And he's a great guy, but he really talks too much when he does that. And so all that gets written down and shipped off. And then maybe, you know, and great. And it gets filed away on a little index card virtually somewhere. And you're doing this for student after student after student, whether they're from the U.S., whether they're from France, whether they're from Venezuela, Mexico, wherever they are. All that information is going back to Moscow and sitting there. Well, maybe, you know, Perry joins the State Department. He does a great job. And one day he gets, you know, he's ambassador to Paris. Well, it's really helpful to know. He loves to talk about baseball and he's inclined to maybe drink too much when he does that. Mm-hmm. And then maybe after the ambassadorship, he comes back and one day he's secretary of state. So this is, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. This happens over the span of a career. But for an intelligence service, you're collecting all these little pieces which add up over all this time. And again, Don, that one illegal in Cambridge, Massachusetts, is never, ever going to pitch who he's looking at in all likelihood, because you don't want to give him up. I mean, he's too valuable and too hidden and too many resources went in there. But 20 years from now, where somebody all of a sudden is the foreign minister someplace, and, you know, maybe you found out something about the, you know, the foreign minister, I don't want to pick on any particular country, but, you know, he's actually, you know, got some really deep, dark secret and vulnerability that you can use. And then there you design an entire scenario to go up and try and coerce them or recruit them or whatever the case may be. And so this is, but the point is, it goes on, but that's going on every single day. That's going on all across the United States. It's going on and the Russians are doing it. The Chinese are doing it. I mean, any good intelligence service with their salt, this is happening all the time. And, you know, we don't, if you don't know to look for it, it's just kind of blissfully unawares, just there in the background that you don't know it's happening, but it is. Right. And to that, I'm, I'm sorry, but to that point, I mean, to put it, to put it right on the, the, the table here, it's now known that uh, Russian intelligence services have been cultivating Donald businessman Donald Trump going back to the 1980s. You know, which is why I asked the question, because he is one of these, you know, prominent, well-known Americans that was targeted. Yeah, absolutely. And that goes, that is true. And I think when you know people say, well, how do you know that? How can you prove it? And it's like, well, you know, there's one easy way. And at some point, you know, we, the, the CIA or somebody, the FBI or somebody is going to, you know, walk out and have, you know, the information from this file that can talk about what's done. But, but the, the broader point is, I think anybody who's worked this understands just as a matter of course, somebody who is prominent like that, and certainly if they're traveling into Russia, certainly if they're Soviet Union and then Russia, if they have business interests, if they have, you know, the, the projected capability at some point of being a successful businessman, let alone a politician, they're going to be the subject of targeting and collection. That's just the way it works. And so, you know, we, we've fallen into this trap where people, you know, well, you know, if you can't prove it, I don't believe it. Well, okay. I can, I can tell you my life's, my career's experience of what foreign intelligence, Russians in this case, I know what the Russians do. And if you go and talk to like anybody at the CIA or anybody else at the FBI who works Russians, they're going to tell you the same story. And that that is somebody uh, that is of Donald Trump's prominence, going back to the 80s, is absolutely going to be the target of collection. And when you get somebody, you know, what are you collecting against? You're looking at things that make people vulnerable. You're like, you know, does somebody, is, is somebody, you know, enamored of, you know, money? Do, do they have an ego which is, you know, particularly suited to being stroked and flattered? You know, do they have some sort of affinity for, for any particular thing, you know, for women, for, you know, and the problem is you look at Trump and it's like, yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. And just, you know, if I've got a, 
kind of a toolbox of techniques that I can use to try and persuade somebody to work for me. You know, in most cases, only one or two of those tools might work. Nobody's the same, but some things that are going to work for somebody are not going to work at all for somebody else. And then also in the U.S., we don't tend to use coercion nearly as much as the Russians in particular use coercion much more than we do. But the issue with Trump and his personality is like it, it, it could be a hammer. It could be a Phillips head screwdriver, a regular screwdriver, a hammer, a pair of pie. I mean, like for Trump, all these different tools, he exhibits vulnerabilities and the potential vulnerabilities for that. And that's what in particular, I think, as a counterintelligence professional, looking at him independent of any actual factual evidence, of which there's a bunch, but just looking at him from a personality perspective and what makes him tick. If I'm a foreign intelligence officer, that's a that's a dream. Uh, it's fantastic. I can, you know, that is that is a very um, easy is the wrong word. If I go and my job is to find a way to recruit or otherwise influence him, there are a variety of levers. He has a disproportionately large number of levers and tools that I can use to do that. And the last point on that, it isn't. This isn't some binary. Somebody's fine or they're fully recruited and they know they're working for the Russians and they do everything and they're telling them there are all these things in the middle where somebody is, you know, they don't even know they're working for a foreign intelligence service and they're actually, you know, carrying out things or answering things they want done to, they maybe know, but they've been given enough of a fig leaf that they don't really think about it to, they suspect it, but they, so, so it's not, there are so many, every single person that I've either recruited or seen recruited, every one of them are a little bit, in a different spot in terms of what they know and believe that they're doing and what they're willing to do and where everybody has a different little red line of, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the, I'll tell you information about the military, but I'm not going to give you the names of anybody I work with, or I'll tell you the names of the people in other agencies. But I, I mean, everybody has, it, it's, it's, is, you know, every human's unique, every person you recruit is unique. And so that relationship looks different each and every time. So let me ask you about this, because as you just said, Trump's natural personality makes him vulnerable across so many different areas in so many different ways. Um, and the FBI's job is to really be a referee of, um, of law and order in, inside our borders. And so you get to the summer of 2016, you know that you have a personality that's particularly vulnerable and he's running for the position to run the entire government. And then you know that Russia is getting involved in trying to disseminate information that's problematic for our free and fair elections. And he, there's a back and forth that exists between Russia and Trump, not directly, but one that's actually played out in the media where he's asking Russia, if you're listening, I, I know the, the press would reward you if you can find our emails. So there's this back and forth. And I believe it's Susan Rice that says, I believe to Director Comey in your book, um, look, you all should think about writing a statement. And what I'm fascinated by is that the White House then comes over the top after a statement is initially drafted. And they say, hey, look, I know you're supposed to be the referee, but we need you to swallow your whistle in this case. Can you talk about now, looking back on, on, on everything, whether that was a moment in time that had we done it differently, we may have ended up with a different result. For sure. I think we would have 
ended up with a different result if we behaved differently. I think everybody, and you know, this wasn't just the FBI, but it, my, my perception, and I think it's an accurate one, of what was going on across the government, but also at the White House, was this really complex set of considerations of what's our job? What, you know, and even within the FBI, some of that is okay. If somebody is, you know, first and foremost, it's protect the United States. And that includes protecting Donald Trump. You know, if, if the Russians are targeting him or any other candidate, you know, we will go in and prevent or try and prevent Russia, China, anybody in overseas, a foreign nation from impacting or, or attempting to influence the election. And that's a purely defensive sort of, you know, whoever you are, whatever party you are, that doesn't matter. You're American and we're trying to protect you. And then you get these different issues though, where you start getting allegations of people who are cooperating or people who are seeking that assistance. And then that all of a sudden that changes that relationship because again, this wasn't these, when we first started looking, it wasn't looking at Trump. It wasn't looking at his campaign. It was looking at these other individuals for this very discrete issue about whether or not the Russians had offered to coordinate the release of um, Clinton and other email in coordination with the Trump campaign to help him. Outside of the FBI, though, I think there was, you know, and certainly when you get to the White House, on top of those sort of considerations, you get a whole bunch of political overlay and issues of what people, you know, what they're trying to do. Did the Obama White House want Clinton to prevail? Of course they did. They, you know, Clinton was their preferred candidate. And at the same time, they were very, you know, whatever pros and cons, and there were both obviously with the Obama administration. I do think they were remarkably scandal free. And altruistic in a way that would place them in the certainly the upper court quartile or whatever you want to call it of the average administration. And I truly my perception was that they truly did not want to be seen as becoming involved in in a non-political process from a political place. And on top of that, like everybody else, I think they assumed that Clinton was going to win. They didn't know that being involved or making a statement or doing anything to really call out the Russians was going to help because Trump was making a huge issue on the campaign trail about, you know, it's rigged, crooked Hillary's out to get me, Obama's helping her, all this, you know, is is is, is completely corrupt, all, you know, the deep state's out to get me. I mean, he was saying this before he was ever elected. And so the Obama administration comes out and is too vocal about saying, look at the Rus- what the Russians are doing to help Trump. It's going to play into his narrative. And so I think if you're the White House, you're sitting there saying, well, you know, this is this may backfire on us. It's going to make us look political. Hillary's going to win anyway. There's some question. I mean, I think some, I don't know this one way or the other, but I've seen it speculated that, you know, if you're Obama and you're at the end of your second term, you are looking at your legacy. Hillary beat you up a lot in some other primary challenges. How much of your political capital do you want to spend to help her if you can ride off into the sunset of having been this kind of paragon of virtue? So, you know, if I'm, if I'm, and again, this is Pete speculating, not based on any inside knowledge, how much do I want to place my legacy at risk of being seen as trying too hard from a partisan perspective to help her because I want to maintain my own image and she's going to win anyway. So, you know, or at least that was the thought process. So that I think is what ultimately played into the, and I think in general, much of the administration thought too hard. I mean, there's, I mean, there were really bright people, really well-intentioned, but when you get a bunch of really bright, well-intentioned people, there is the tendency sometimes that you can, you, you get this like mental, I don't you, you can get too caught up in the process to the point that you stop acting and that, that final, like, well, you know, there's always a what if, you know, and that in, in government or any, I'm sure it's true in the business world, you, you know, far better than I do. 
you've got to be comfortable making a decision at the 80, 85% certainty point. You can think forever to get yourself to 95, but you're never going to get to that point. And, and the cost of inaction to get to that next five, 10% certainty. I mean, that's, that's the hard part of government. That's the hard part of being a leader in decision-making is understanding, you know, what is my comfort, my risk comfort in that 15% Delta that I don't know. And the opportunity cost of waiting to get that additional one or 2% rather than acting right now. And I think you saw in a lot of cases, the Obama administration would err too far and thinking too hard rather than just go out and make the decision and do it. Um, so I think that is what accounted for that. I think had we said, we, the big government, we made more of an issue of, of kind of disclosing what the Russians were doing. It would have potentially, um, you know, much like highlighting what the Russians are doing with Ukraine. We, we took that, we took that tool out of the Russian's hands. I mean, Ron Johnson and all these people who are trying to, you know, bring up Burisma and Hunter Biden and everything they tried, but there was a very different response to that from a governmental perspective. And I think, had the government acted differently, it might have made a difference, um, would have made a difference in 16. The extent that, you know, you talk about the Obama administration, their decision being shaped by this feeling of, well, Hillary's going to win anyway. I mean, it seems to me that the tough call that, that you guys were confronted with over at the FBI, Comey reporting uh, the additional emails that needed to be looked at to Congress as he promised he would. And he sent the letter over, which was leaked, which, of course, is now the infamous letter that that, that many people blame um, Hillary's loss on. I mean, that's about as tough a decision as it gets. And I would have to imagine believing that Hillary was going to win anyway had to be a big influence there. Because, as you point out, Trump was already setting the table to say that the election was rigged, that it was stolen, that he didn't really lose. This is 2016, not last month. And um, – you know, had it come out after the election that the FBI still had emails to go through, I mean, that might have been really devastating and, of course, you know, you know, weaponized for, for Trump's purposes at times. I mean, I just I, I look at these things and it's so easy to judge after the fact, you know, when you have the benefit of hindsight of what happened. But I mean, these are really impossible decisions. I mean, going to 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 the question of whether or not the president of the United States was compromised by a foreign adversary. I mean, the, the, confronting that kind of question as an FBI uh, official is just nearly impossible. I mean, is there any precedent at all to having to confront something like that? Not that I know of. And that's the point that, you know, I've, I and others have made. I, I, it is, it's hackneyed to say, oh, this was uncharted, unprecedented territory because we say that a lot, but I, in this case, you know, and I, and so I hesitate to say things like that, but I cannot think of anything close to this in our nation's history. I mean, maybe early on, like early, 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 you know, when the entanglements with the French and, you know, the French Indian War and all that. Yeah. Might there have been people in the cabinets who were close to the, the, the English or the French or maybe, but in, in modern, his presidential history, there's nothing like this. And to, to consider you know, I don't think any, I didn't, and I don't think anybody seriously thought the likely answer was that Trump was a witting agent of Russia and that, you know, some sort of Manchurian candidate, but we couldn't exclude it. You know, in good faith, we couldn't look at all the data and say, well, 
Yeah, because you try and scope your problem, right? You're, you, I mean, you're you, you're necessarily resource limited. You you don't, by the nature of most government work, and certainly the FBI, you never have enough resources to do the work you have in front of you. So you have to prioritize your risk. And the first thing you do, I mean, you do that across the board. But when it comes to CI or any particular case, you you sit there and say, okay, what's what's kind of the worst case scenario, and and what's the best case scenario, and that's those are my boundaries. I've got to operate within here. And we can't ever eliminate the worst case that he might be wittingly working for the Russians clandestinely. It's horrible. And we've never been in it as a nation, never been in that spot before. And I pray to God we never are again. But to try and explain the impact that has on your thinking as you're trying to decide what to do. And at the same time, we had caught so much hell for being, for finding ourselves in the middle of the presidential race. And when Comey made the, you know, the July 5th speech and all the people from, you know, commentary out there about, you know, you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have made a speech. You know, we're in the middle of the FBI. didn't want to be anywhere near that. And now we find ourselves with even more of an explosive. The public didn't know it. Right. But, you know, we're sitting on top of this allegation that is 100,000 times more explosive than, you know, whether or not you put classified information in an email. And how that drives your decision making, what you're trying to do, and how much we've been over backwards for that not to be known. Um it, it, it introduces a level of complexity into the debate and decision-making that I think even, you know, all the factors you mentioned are absolutely true, you know, and, and everything else. Like, you know, you would, if Comey had not announced it, New York was aware of it. You know, there are people, they're talking to, you know, Rudy Giuliani, apparently it looked like, or at least he claimed that he had sources in, in New York. So all these things about, well, if Comey doesn't say something, is it going to come out anyway? But all these different factors, when you plug them in, there's so many variables in trying to sort out, you know, what the right answer is. And just to remind people what the July 5th speech was that you're referring to, uh, James Comey came out on July 5th um, of 2016 and gave a press conference saying that the FBI um, had investigated the email matter and found no reason why there should be any uh, uh, prosecution or there was anything to to move forward with and why that was controversial is that the FBI traditionally uh, looks at things and if there's nothing to move forward with, they say nothing. And so the point of him coming out and saying, Hey, we're not going to go forward with anything here looked political to a lot of people. Right. And that's, um, I, I think that will be a decision at some point. I've always thought that, you know, I don't know what, gets pulled out of this time frame, but, you know, I know like, you know, studying international affairs that, you know, you always look at the Cuban missile crisis and you look at the, you know, kind of the facts of how it unfolded. And then you look at all the decision-making about how, you know, what did the Soviets think? What did Kennedy think? How did this all unfold? And, you know, what, what were they thinking? What were the options? What could have happened? What did, but at some point, you know, students in the future, I don't know when, but at some point they're going to look back at 2016 and analyze all these decisions and sit there and say, okay, let's unpack all these different factors of what was going on. And I think, you know, it is true that as a general principle, the FBI, if we don't charge, we let public comment be dictated by who is charged. And if somebody isn't charged, there isn't a comment. That isn't universally true. I mean, there are things like, uh, you know, Jose Padilla, who is a, uh, an American citizen who was detained as a, as, a, as a terrorism subject. You know, there were comments made about him and, and certainly others um, that were not charged, but public comment was made by the Bureau 
But in most, if not all of those cases, that was kind of done in coordination, at least with the knowledge of DOJ. And for a variety of reasons, Director Comey didn't do that. Some of that was, you know, A.G. Lynch at the time had just met with Bill Clinton at the tarmac out in Phoenix, which, you know, put, it was a horrible decision, made DOJ or made, yeah, made DOJ look far from apolitical. So all, again, when you look at the, all the variables and the complexity that went into that decision, it was not as straightforward a choice, I think, as some people had, but it did put the FBI in the middle of the in in the middle of the election. And more importantly, that by that speech and what he told Congress that you know here's what we found and we've closed it. Nobody knew it at the time, but then that puts us on the path. And then late October, when we have to open the case again, it's like, well, you know, we told Congress we closed it, so you know there was a significant factor of we've got an obligation then to go back and tell them that we've reopened it. And so again, I I am much more that October, November decision was horrible and difficult, but in some ways we were kind of locked into it in a way that we were put on that path back on the July 5th. And had we known then what we later came to know, I'm, you know, I think many of us would have would have counseled differently. I, I know Director Comey said he would have still, you know, done things the same way. I don't know about that, but he's. I, I take him at his word. Um, Help me understand that that better. That you were locked into that decision because when that occurred, Ed and I were on the phone, and I said, "I this one I don't get." The the July one, he was locked in because Loretta Lynch had been on the tarmac with the Clintons and spoken to them for a little while, which was just bad judgment. Uh, and you can argue all day long about whether or not Comey should have spoken in July, because as Ed says, and as you said, normally you just don't comment on an investigation. But the October letter surprised me because there is a rule in the Department of Justice that we don't talk within 60 days of an election. Wouldn't you have always had the cover of that truth? You, we we looked at that policy, and what the, the departmental policy says is that usually – as I recall, and I'd want to go back before I'm put my stamp of, I'm certain about this usually regards decisions about charging somebody, you know, we're going to go out and indict or, you know, swear out a complaint. And the perception was that this is not her. She's not being charged. We're not saying we search warrant on her. We have a, you know, device that's actually Anthony Weiner's laptop that we're going to get a search warrant to go take a look at emails that are in there. And the choice was, it was clear that we had this laptop. We had reason to believe that there was a relevant email in there and that we needed to look at it. So investigatively, that was clear. I don't think anybody debates that we needed appropriately to go look at that and should have. The question then was, you know, one, do we wait to do that? And two, if we don't wait to do it, do we announce it? And so the perception was if we were waiting, well, why are we waiting? You know, that's giving an advantage to Hillary Clinton. You know, there's no investigative reason to wait. Usually you do things as fast as you can because you want to get to the information before it can be lost or destroyed or people's memories fade. And to postpone it not only is not something we'd ordinarily do, but also could very well be argued and perceived as, you know, you're giving her a pass. You're, you're taking it easy on her because she just happens to be running for president. And so then the question shifts and I think the appropriate decision in the, that first question, okay, we need to move forward on this. The next question is, well, do you do that in secret and not tell anybody, or do you make some sort of announcement? And again, you know, in Comey's words, and I think he's, he's talked about this at length, you know, there were two 
essentially two choices there. One, you could go do it and not tell anybody and deceive them and conceal. Or two, you could be straightforward and, and announce what we were doing. And telling people would clearly have an impact and would be very bad, but concealing it would be much worse. And so your two options on whether or not to announce it are both bad, but the idea that the FBI would start doing this and not disclose that, particularly to Congress, having told Congress we've closed it and set up that kind of implicit understanding that if we reopen it, we'll let them know. There is the concern that, you know, one, when that comes out eventually, what does that do to the results of the election? Again, most people were thinking at that time, Clinton was a prohibitive favorite. Does that throw into doubt the legitimacy of her election? You know, if the FBI just said something, you know, she was under investigation. The American public needed to know that. They didn't know that. The FBI hid that from them. And that's what Trump had been saying all along. This is crooked. It's been set up. It's illegitimate. She, her presidency is illegitimate. So if you don't disclose that, what harm do you place going into the future? And this whole issue of, you know, are you going to keep that secret? Because again, keep in mind, Rudy is sitting there on Fox News saying, I've got people in the FBI who are telling me a big surprise is coming. Literally, I mean, he's saying that like, we've got the laptop. We all know it. Rudy's saying that. Nobody said anything yet. So the question is, okay, if you're, so so say Comey does decide, all right, we're not going to make an announcement. And somebody up in New York says, well, the hell with this. They're sitting on this. I'm going to tell Rudy or tell whoever. And somehow it leaks out. And then it's like, then it's horrible because it's before the election, Comey or whomever knows, they're not saying anything about it because they're trying to throw the election to Hillary. And it's exactly what Trump is saying. And so the best way to, to just get out of all of that political sort of machinations are not to say, okay, we can't even consider all of these sort of political considerations. This is what would we normally do? What are the choices in front of us? And again, you know, it was conceal or say what we were doing and one is bad and the other is horrible. So I think that was, and, and there were other, I mean, there were some other, they, 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 you know, there are a couple of links and this is kind of flagged in the, in the IG report. There were, there was a class still classified matter that, you know, weighed into some of this decision-making process. It was a peripheral thing. It was not a, a determinative issue, but the point being that there are all these various sort of inputs that go into that the, the weighing process of that decision. But look, I, I, to be clear, I think certainly that decision to make that announcement changed the outcome of the election. I think Russia's illegal attacks and media operations and assistance and attempts to influence and help the Trump campaign changed the outcome of the election. So did Clinton's decision to, you know, probably not put enough time into, you know, the... <laughs> Wisconsin and Minnesota and Pennsylvania and a hundred other things. But if I look at kind of the American political process, a lot of those things belong there. Candidates' decision about where to focus their campaign is their decision. What I know doesn't belong in that process is the government of Russia and the FBI. Yeah. So, you know, and that's a hard, it's a hard thing to kind of think about. And you know, um, one of the things that comes across throughout your book is really how disciplined Eight FBI agents uh, have to be to, uh, in not ever talking about what they know and how they know it. And it just, it gets me to wonder whether or not we're, we're creating a rod for our own back. Uh, 
that we, um, we don't get the correct information out there and incorrect information does get out there and it, it lives there. And, and we, we become less attuned to the real struggle that's happening. Ed and I have talked a lot about these two guys during 2016, older guys, white guys that are wearing shirts they got their arms around each other uh, like this, and they're saying their shirts, uh, same shirt, says, I'd rather be Russian than a Democrat. <laughs> and, you know, when I saw that, I called Ed and I just said, you know, how ignorant can someone be? How lost can your conclusion be about what's actually occurring in the world? You know, we're the richest nation in the history of nations. We own 30% of the wealth in the world. Russia owns a little less than 3%. They're one-tenth our size. They're not catching up. So the only thing that, that can happen is they can get us to slow down. And these two knuckleheads have a shirt on saying, hey, we really should slow down. It's a great idea. And so I'm just wondering, after the last four years, whether you feel like our government does a bad job of explaining the threats that are out there and that we are under attack because people don't want us to excel. I'm just wondering if you feel like we've, we've lost the plot because of our discipline. The, 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 that's a great question. And what I struggle with is what is the government's role in that debate? I think certainly there's always room to explain to the American public what foreign nations are trying to do. And, I, you know, I worry about Russia, but I really, really worry about China in the long run because, you know, Russia tried, you know, in the Cold War to have an arms race with us, but China is truly, this isn't a battle of ideology. This is a battle of economies. And China is in a multifaceted front going after American primacy in manufacturing, whatever the sector, you know, from pharmaceuticals to energy to agriculture to the defense industry, you know, across the board, they're seeking to be the global leader. And, you know, they'll say that in their, you know, five and 10 year plans. It's clear. It's not a hidden secret. Um, and so the role of the government to educate people and to say, hey, look, you need to be aware of this and this is a real issue. And we need to find a way in this complex, interconnected global economy, particularly with regard to China. At the same time, they're not playing by kind of globally established rules of openness and transparency that make for free trade and an and equal playing field. But when it comes to things like, you know, you two guys in the t-shirts, that's a different, that that's a that's something much more core to the American political experience. And I don't know what role the government has in that. I mean, I think we've certainly seen what, you know, I grew up in a Republican household, uh, you know, it was very, it was conservative. It was, you know, a military household. There was strong law and order. And, you know, traditionally that was the Republican party was the party of, you know, strong defense and the, you know, law enforcement community. And to have that completely flipped at points in the past four years where, you know, the Republican party, at least in Congress was sitting there talking about the FBI as part of the deep state. And you had Democrats who were rallying around the FBI saying, you know, they're, they're, they're strong and they need to be uh, an effective, strong part of the American um, society. That upside downness, and I think really disappointingly, and you know we're probably going to see it really soon in an impeachment vote of people willing to put party ahead of their nation is a huge concern. But to your question, I don't know how much the government should play in 
illustrating that issue. I mean, certainly the government should be saying, hey, look, Russia certainly first and foremost is playing in social media. They're designing things to exacerbate divisions that exist within American society. But they already exist. The Russians aren't creating those. There's already racial tension. There's already tension around the Second Amendment. The Russians are just smart and sitting there saying, okay, if I've got one gallon of gasoline, how do I best use that to stoke the flames in the United States? And they're looking and they're saying, wow, Black Lives Matter. There's a really high tension point or wow, the Second Amendment or whatever it is. They're not creating this. They're accelerating it. But the issues are ours and they're not I mean, they, they, they play out in our government, but I can see a role for the government saying, hey, look, here's what foreign nations are doing. But that, in my mind, kind of ends when you start saying, well, you know, what's, what's the underlying cause that those guys really believe, you know, what their T-shirts are saying? Because that, I don't know that there's anything anybody in the government's going to be able to say to change that opinion. I don't know. I, it's, it's a great question and I don't have a good answer. The way I see it is I feel as if that needs to come from specific leaders and the kind of leadership. You know, you need to have, I believe, if you're going to hold public office and hold the public trust, I think you need to have uh, not just the the decency and courage, but the respect for the people who do support you to tell them the truth. You know, to say to someone who's on your side already that the opponent – you know, what you're fighting against isn't someone who wants to destroy the country. It's someone who loves the country also, but has a different idea about how to achieve our goals. And so you need to stop people from saying, um, lock up him or her. You know, you need to take responsibility and say, whoa, 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 that, that, that's not what we're about here. And so, look, I'm, uh, look, this is, this is, you know, <laughs> thinly, let's just put our cards on the table. Donald Trump represents everything you would not want in leadership or someone who holds the public trust. I don't even think that's a controversial statement. Now, I know some people would argue with it, but I think any thinking person would, would say that, you know, you know, he's the type of person that, that tells the guy who cuts off someone in traffic and then flips them off that that's okay to do. Because if, if you didn't cut off that guy, he'd cut you off. You know, you're a sucker. I think this has to come from leadership. And I don't really know the right answer because our primary process is is just designed in a way to attract the, the most extreme people really on, on both sides of the, of the political spectrum. But it really comes from leadership. And I think everything we're suffering from now and everything we're talking about and this sort of tension and this bad energy that's in the country is the aftertaste of someone who – whether or not he had good ideas or bad good ideas that he wanted to advance and whether you believe in those ideas went about it in a way that was specifically designed to drive this cudgel between Americans. And now we have to deal with it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's hard to, the hardest thing in my mind is my belief. And I think many people's beliefs about if you were to sit down a hundred people from the complete range of the political spectrum and sit there and say, okay, what take away all your individual beliefs, you know, whatever they may be on, you know, religion, right to life, you know, any, any contentious issue. Are there a core set of beliefs that we all agree on? I think at least I've been surprised that I don't think what I believed up until now was that core set of belief that we could all agree on, regardless of your sort of political affiliation, isn't nearly as much as I thought that there is much 
less of this common ground than I expected. And I think the, the hardest part is trying to understand and define and as a leader to put forward and say, look, these are core tenets that we all should agree on as a society. And it gets hard because they immediately get into, you know, political issues. Some of it, look, clearly Trump had a huge resonance with the heartland, with people who looked at coastal elites and said, they don't understand me. They're not looking out for me. They don't talk like me. Trump does. He's not putting up with their BS. He gets me, whether or not it was true. They, many people felt it was true. And you saw a strong political association with that and support based on that. At the same time, there's some really ugly stuff under the hood in some of those cases of lingering racism, lingering sexism that kind of commingles in there that was also being defended. You know, the whole Charlottesville, they're good people on both sides. No, they're not. They're really not. In that issue in Charlottesville, there aren't, there, there's not some moral equivalence here. And there are some things, again, going to that core, you know, we, we had a bloody, god-awful terrorization apart civil war to come to a decision about whether or not on some issues, you know, certainly what we believe and don't. And so how you have a honest dialogue like that when there are some things that are so charged is and have been so promoted over the past four years to sit there and unwind it and say, you know what, some of these things are not in fact acceptable is tough because people have spent four years, people stormed the Capitol thinking in some cases, those beliefs were morally justified. Their commander in chief told them they were right and it was okay. And they weren't. And so now, you know, if you get somebody up there saying, you know, whether it's Biden or the attorney general or some voice of authority that they're not right, you know, well, Trump said I was right. And I, I worry how that, how some elements, how that plays out in their response. There's, uh, you know, going to that point of what good, good governance looks like. Um, there's a story you have in the book that I did not know that you were a part of, which is that you and another agent went in and sat down with Mike Flynn and asked him about his discussions with uh, some of the Russians. And you knew exactly what the truth was. And you talk about uh, the fact, not only that he lied, but that you had been trained to look for certain attributes when someone's lying and how he was an outlier in that. Can you talk about that for a second? Because again, we're talking about good governance. We're talking about surrounding yourself with quote unquote, the best people. And I just was interested in that because it showed who the people were that were surrounding him. Uh, that's, um, you know, and the good news for this answer is that the government's declassified so much stuff that it, there's a lot more out there than even I could say when I was writing the book. So the, the kind of, to set up the scene prior to the inauguration of where Trump was inaugurated, taking over from Obama. Uh, Obama, the administration decided, well, we need to sanction the Russians because they attacked our elections. They did all kinds of horrible stuff. We have to try and convey a message that this isn't acceptable. So the decision was made that, you know, we're going to expel a bunch of Russian diplomats. We shut down some properties. We did a variety of things to try from a policy perspective to demonstrate to, you know, give the Russians a little pain and tell them this isn't okay. 
while that was going on, members of the Trump campaign, specifically Mike Flynn, reach out and have conversations with the Russians, specifically Ambassador Kislyak, who's the Russian ambassador here in D.C. Again, this is all before Trump is um, sworn in, saying, hey, look, you know, take it easy, moderate your response. You know, we don't want you going overboard. Don't get dragged into some tit for tat. They also talked about stuff that had no relevance whatsoever to that. There was a there's a U.N. vote on. Israeli settlements that they wanted to try and get the Russians to vote a certain way. And they were asking them to do that. So Flynn was engaged in all of this again. And, and the issue we had, not only was he doing that before they'd even been, you know, essentially pursuing a foreign policy, parallel foreign policy process. We also didn't still didn't know at that time what we did had or didn't had in terms of the Trump campaign cooperating and collaborating with the Russians to get elected. We couldn't answer that question. And so the whole issue when we see Flynn having these conversations is like, well, you know, is this part of a continuing bargain or a decision that they made months ago to work together to get Trump elected? And most importantly, is Trump the one telling or does he know or have had any sort of input to Flynn to go out and do this as part of that agreement, if the agreement existed? Because we don't know. We still don't know at that point in time. So in any event, though, we, we know exactly what was said and the transcripts have been released of exactly what he said. And we walk in there knowing full well what, and this is two weeks after he had the conversation ish and it's been in the newspaper and he's been dragged in front of the vice president and he's talked to Sean Spicer about it. And he's had all these conversations at the white house saying exactly what these conversations were. And he said, no, I didn't do this. I don't remember that. And so we're sitting down and talking to him and most people, you know, to your point, most people, when they lie, exhibit behavior that you can see, particularly if you have a kind of, you know, somebody very well, or even if we have a conversation, we're talking for 15, 20 minutes, I'll just watch you as you're responding. And when you're answering things like Sleepy Hollow, I know, oh, yeah, you know, I know that dormitory in Georgetown. Yes, the, you know, the dumpster. And when you're telling me, when you're thinking back to a memory and when you're telling the truth, I see kind of how you, how your face moves, what you do, what your mannerisms are. And then if I start getting into a point where I'm asking you questions that either I think you might lie there are behaviors that people can exhibit. You know, they do things like, you know, they'll repeat the question rather than answer it. They'll, you know, put their hand over their mouth. They'll look in a different direction. They'll, there are a bunch of things that when people enter and start lying that you can see if you're looking for it. And some people are better liars than others. Um, And they can, you can stop. You can train yourself to not do those things when you're lying. But for Flynn, you know, he, he saw us the same day that we called over to ask. He didn't want an attorney there. He knew why we were coming over. He told Andy McCabe, the deputy director, that, well, you all know what I said. Why do you need to talk to me about it? So he knows exactly. He knows all these things. And yet he's sitting there and we're asking him. And he's like, no, I don't recall that. And, you know, in, in, in time after time, he's telling us he doesn't remember or that he didn't do it. And then we start prompting him and saying, well, you know, and so we know from the transcript, he said, don't get, you know, don't engage in some tit for tat escalation. So we start throwing him these like to refresh his recollection. Well, you sure you didn't ever say anything like, you know, don't get in caught up in a tit for tat, you know, to give him either to jog his recollection or give him a fig leaf and like, Oh yeah, that reminds me. Yeah, I did. But no, he didn't. And he didn't, as we watched him display any of those things that you would expect to see if somebody were lying to you. That doesn't mean he wasn't lying. You know, and a lot of people have said afterwards, well, the agents who interviewed him said he wasn't lying. No, that's not what we said. We said he didn't, he didn't demonstrate characteristics of somebody who was lying. And I don't, to this day, understand what was going on in his head. I think after the fact, 
you know, you look at the stuff that's come out in the last days of the Trump administration where he's sitting there in the Oval Office and there's been some Axios reporting real recently where Trump is like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to make you the director of the FBI or I'm going to bring Sidney Powell back, give her a clearance. And, and Flynn is advocating for instituting martial law to redo the election. I mean, you I don't want to swear. <laughs> Are you kidding me? You can swear. <laughs> You know, this guy was a three-star general. He was the director of the DIA. You know, he was the, the, those those promotions to flag officer, particularly as you get to two and three stars. Yeah. They have a lot of scrutiny. They have a lot of support. And here's this guy who at some point, and I think the general kind of the gossip around Washington, part of why Obama pulled Trump aside and said, hey, be careful of Flynn. That wasn't because anything we told him or that we were doing. That was Trump's experience with him at DIA. And so something in... Mike Flynn, who's a great soldier, who, you know, gets three stars, serves in, you know, wartime environment, at some point goes, I don't know what happens, where he's now sitting in the Oval Office, not telling the truth to a couple of FBI agents, where he is leading cheers to lock her up with Trump on the campaign trail, where he, four years later, at the twilight of the Trump administration, is sitting there in the Oval Office advocating for martial law to redo the election. And how in the hell, if you're Trump, that's all you have left. And there are other people, you know, kind of there's this rogues gallery of bizarre people sitting there, apparently in screaming matches with whatever remains of the White House Counsel's office, because, you know, all these people with the slightest bit of credibility have left years ago. And that's, you know, that, that that's the, that's the end of the, that's the end of the rock farm. And it, again, I, Flynn is, is, is interesting to me and somebody out there, I think there's an interesting, at some point this period will give biographers a, a rich yeah. environment uh, yeah. to, to choose and think and research and write about. The pardons must be maddening for you. Oh, it's, I mean, as a, as a, right. As a person that does the work, to, and the just the I don't think people appreciate what you need to do to bring a case. The amount of work. I mean, everybody sees the press conference when bringing these charges, but I mean, yeah, the prosecutors don't bring it unless they've got it. And it's just it must be maddening. I, I it go ahead. Yeah, no, it is, and it is, and, and you're absolutely right that you know of cases only a small percentage you actually get to the point where you can establish the evidence that the crime's been committed yeah. you know and a lot of the times you know somebody did something and you know you're never going to prove it and that's really frustrating because you know you know a bad person got away with it right but that subset that you actually bring to trial and there's so much work and you know some of them yes people plead but there's a ton of work that goes there and if a case is brought usually not always but usually there is overwhelming evidence. Like you don't go in, a prosecutor doesn't go into the courtroom unless they honest to God believe that they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody broke the law and have all the evidence to, to back that up. And so it's a fairly, it is a very high standard to do that. And so to see all this work kind of wiped away, and this wasn't, none of this was a miscarriage of justice. This was Trump just giving the middle finger to the deep state for the, you know, no collusion, no, you know, obstruction and, and let everybody off. But I've got to tell you, as, as aggravating and frustrating as that was, and it was tremendously, that's still kind of enumerated power of the president to pardon people who he wants. What was even more frustrating than that was the actions of DOJ 
kind of trying to unwind the sentencing and unwind the cases of like Roger Stone and Mike Flynn. And yeah, Trump pardoned them eventually. But before that, you saw Bill Barr and DOJ getting involved in a very unprecedented political way to try and undo these things that in some way that corruption of DOJ was even worse than the kind of corrupt process of these pardons. And, and that, and I think, you know, you look, and it was interesting too, like looking at a, a lot of legal commentators, people, you know, former DOJ prosecutors and, and senior officials, I, I think had the same sort of response that it's the, the pardons are horrible and, and gut wrenching, but what DOJ was doing internally was even was much worse because the pardon power kind of inherently carries with it a certain political flavor but DOJ shouldn't, and it, and yet it was, and that was so. All of it, yeah, was was just frustrating, and you know, my heart just for all the investigators out there, for all the prosecutors who literally, you know, you, these things will take up your life. I mean, a case can. You're working seven days a week. You're working long days. You know. 12, 14 hour days, you're not seeing your family, you're not eating well, you're not getting any sleep, you're you're driving after this and and doing that for weeks and weeks and months and months and months and to suddenly just see it kind of corrupt corruptly turned upside down is is difficult. Yeah. Well Perry Perry and I, you know, share a concern that I think a lot I know a lot of people do. It has to do with the culture at the FBI and what's you know, the sort of the ongoing consequences of the past couple of years. And, you know, the FBI has been, you know, really beaten up pretty badly and um, it's been very politicized. And the way, just from my perspective, the way I look at it, I've never had trouble believing that someone that had a bias towards one idea or thought a certain way could maintain objectivity when presented with the facts. I mean, in my own profession, I'm an investor and I do have my own biases and I have my own thoughts on businesses and companies and industries that I favor or not favor, just sort of, you know, maybe for superficial reasons. But when presented with the evidence, when evaluating the facts, you know, I, I, I've been able to maintain my objectivity. In fact, it's the only way you can make a living in this game is to remain objective. And so when I think about when, when, when someone is accused of having a bias, I never look at it necessarily as pejoratively as people say, but everybody has their biases. We all bring to a decision. We all bring to work the, you know, the sum total of our life's experiences and we have preexisting beliefs, but it's important to be objective when presented with the facts on a matter. And so I never found it, you know, as shocking that people could do that. And that's what my expectations are from people who work at the FBI or the, or the justice department. And I, I guess I have two questions. I'm curious when you get hired by the FBI or they're recruiting agents, what goes into um, evaluating people for that capacity? And, you know, do they outright in background checks, look at past political activity for level of passion or interest, or even family members that may be, you know, party activists or run for office. To what extent does the FBI make an attempt to police this? And then how does, the spirit of what I just described, how is that embodied inside the FBI and talked about? Um, uh, so to, to, you know, to maintain that culture going, going forward. Um, it's a great question. It isn't considered uh, as part of the hiring process in terms of sort of like formal 
party affiliation or whether or not you're outspoken. I mean, people will check now, you know, they look at your you know social media feed, but that's more kind of a, a maturity check as part of the background investigation, not a, a partisan right. one. And so I, it's not considered, you know, we don't sit there and say, okay, you know, is somebody, which way are they registered or not? Is their, you know, spouse an elected official or anything? It just doesn't play a role. There is certainly, there is a role in the hiring process that talks about, you know, a level of maturity. And that is something that, you know, do you, in terms of bringing objectivity to your job, you know, I don't know where it would be identified if somebody was, you know, a blatant partisan trying to get hired, where that would get picked up in the process. I I never saw it. Uh, it. It was not a part of my experience. And that goes to the second part of your question about the culture. It truly was never, I know, you know, I, clearly had personal political opinions. And I know most agents did, but it truly it never came up. It just was not part of any decision-making process. I mean, clearly people were, the vast majority of FBI agents are conservative Republicans. I mean, I, uh, not conservative Republicans, but on the spectrum are conservative mm-hmm. and Republicans as opposed to Democrats. I wouldn't say they're conservative Republicans. And that's clear. And I think that's just kind of that historical affiliation and, um, resonance of the Republican party being that of law and order and, you right. know, national defense and providing funding and that natural affinity is there, but there was never a, there were some people I could tell you just based on some comments. Oh yeah, no, I know he's pretty, you know, strong, whoever supported Bush supporter, whatever, mm-hmm. but by and large, I couldn't. And it just never came up. I mean, people don't talk about, the elections. People are not, you know, you can't put, you know, kind of public partisan stuff up and it just didn't, you know, come up. The exception to that is certainly going back to like Louis Free and the Clintons and the New York aspect, you know, because Louis was director free, was, was strongly came out of New York. There was an antagonism there that for a variety of reasons, you know, the relationship with the Saudis and Cobart Towers and moving into the, you know, the special counsel and Whitewater and, and Monica Lewinsky and that whole interaction between the White House and the Clintons and Free that I think created a niche of antagonism there that is notable, I think, but it was not pervasive and certainly not you know, kind of in the day-to-day basis. So I think the, the, the good news for you, for your listeners, I mean, I truly do think the FBI culture, and some of this is the hard lessons of the, the 50s and 60s and 70s under, under Hoover and that, you know, all the abuses that came out were brought to light through the church and pike committees and looking at and kind of institutionalizing regulations to make sure and training to make sure that we aren't getting involved in things that are political in nature, that it is very much part of the culture that you just don't, politics don't play a role. And so that's good news. The bad news is that a lot of people believe that they do. And that is in no small part due to both Congress and some elements of the media trying to play that up and how we, and then certainly, you know, in my opinion, the, the actions of this past administration in particular, not so much the FBI, but DOJ really doing things that were political. I mean, stridently unprecedentedly political that, cause good people to kind of raise an eyebrow and say, that seems less than objective to me. I think the average agent on the street is absolutely apolitical. I think they see this as a lot of background noise that they'd rather not have, that 
doesn't necessarily impact their job a lot other than, you know, people asking questions about, you know, what's going on with Clinton or with Trump or Roger Stone or whatever the case may be. But the solution, you know, on the one hand, it's, you know, FBI, keep doing what you're doing. Right? The investigators go out there, investigate hard, make cases, do it objectively, take them into court and let, you know, an adversarial defense probe the case and prove that, you know, the case was righteous and, you know, do good things. From the political perspective, you know, I'm really heartened. I think um, Judge Garland, if and when he's confirmed, is a great selection for the AG for a variety of reasons. I mean, impeccable bipartisan support as a judge. He was a prosecutor. He worked at Oklahoma City. I mean, in terms of bringing, I, I worry and fear we're headed back to a, you know, accelerated um, incidence of domestic terrorism violence. And his experience, uh, you know, as a young prosecutor on that, I think he is a great selection for the job to bring back that apolitical flavor of the Department of Justice. And the thing is getting getting the administration to re- respect that. And then harder is getting Congress to, you know, back off from the, stop trying to politicize the work that, you know, if there is, and inevitably there will be elements of public corruption, that's not a partisan issue that's going to happen on both sides of the aisle and the FBI is going to need to investigate it. And that's the thing. If if the Russians were approaching Clinton or Bernie Sanders or Ted Cruz or whoever the hell it was and the way they were approaching Trump, we would have acted in the exact same way towards that, the individuals on that campaign. This wasn't a function of getting Trump. This was right. a function of protecting against Russia. So that's going to be there. So stop. You've got to, the country needs the ability for the FBI to investigate that and to protect America. And some of that goes back to, you know, your point of, you know, how do we bring back some responsibility to this sort of civic dialogue of saying, you know, it's not surprising. The Russians are going to keep doing this. The Chinese are going to keep doing this. America wants somebody to protect against that. And so yeah. we need to turn down some of the rhetoric that's that's swirling around in the still in the public debate. You know, one of the things that always strikes me when I'm speaking to a friend who judges the actions of the FBI harshly with respect to Trump. I often say to them, what would you expect the FBI to do? What would you want them to do? I mean, if you have credible intelligence, you know, if there's a concern about someone in high office, how do you elect not to investigate it? You know, if you have someone working for someone's campaign and it's just irrefutably true that they've given campaign data to a Russian citizen who's connected to Russian intelligence, how are you supposed to react to that? You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's silly because it's not credible at all because if this was happening inside the campaign of a candidate, they didn't favor, there's no question they would want the FBI and every American should want the FBI to, to pursue these things, you know, fairly and, and evenly no, no matter who it is, <clears throat> which makes me want to ask you, you know, if you were, if you were back at the FBI right now, um, with all the resources available to you, what's what's out there? The biggest unanswered question for you: What would you be working on right now if you weren't famous and we didn't know who you were? That's <laughs> a huge question. I, I think. Well, the, so the, 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 your question was: What's the biggest unanswered question? And I think that, at least from what I would be working, is a slightly different question. And that's: What's the biggest threat? Okay, well, and so. And so, so, and, and, and I'll try and answer both. So, so yeah. an analogy I kind of thought about is like, you know, if you think about Russian 2016 and to a lesser extent, 2020 elections is like a category five hurricane bearing down on 
our nation. And it was bad and caused untold damage. And again, this is all in the world of counterintelligence. And we had to address it and need to address it. But when I look at the threat from China, that's like climate change. That's global warming. That is polar caps melting and the, 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 the sea level rising five feet, wiping out Bangladesh and, you know, radically redrawing the, the coast of the United States. It is radically, radically much more of a challenge than what Russia was. So from a CI perspective of what I would be working because I would want to work the greatest threat, that's trying to figure out how best to protect the U.S. from Chinese intelligence activity, a lot of which is in the economic environment. Right. And Industrial I think that's espionage. Be, and that's going to, yeah. And, and again, broad-based. Yes, everybody thinks about that and they think about, oh, stealth technology and jet engine. Yes, it's in the defense industry, but it's much, much bigger than that. And so in my mind, that as a CI person, that's what I would be working the biggest unknown for me, though, which is like, you know, that that kind of deep down inside, if I had unlimited resources and could do anything, I don't think we ever, I know we didn't, get to the bottom of the true level of interaction between Russia and Trump. Again, as you pointed out early, going back to the 80s. And I look at that and there was some debate about, you know, was should Mueller have done that? And he wasn't going to. I mean, that was outside the scope of his authority. He didn't have the resources to do it, didn't have the time to do it. And when you look at the Senate Intelligence Committee, they published this almost thousand page report, kind of doing a much deeper dive into that. And again, if you've worked in the area, you know, I think there was a bipartisan report. So again, Rubio and Senator Rubio, Senator Burr put their name on that. It was pretty damning. Pretty damning. And it came out so much long, so much after the fact, people ignored it. Right. And this is, you know, the the crown jewels of the FBI and CIA and NSA are not getting shared with the Senate. I mean, they, they will get elements of that. They will get watered down versions. They will get summaries of it, but they're not going to get like full sit down and, you know, see the raw reporting from what some source is saying. So in my mind, the biggest thing that I don't know is some retroactive look to sit down and do that counterintelligence assessment of what Russia did with with regard to not just the Trump campaign, but certainly that, but kind of across the board in 2016. One, because it was, from a CI perspective, I think you, I would argue the biggest CI case in American history, bigger than the atomic bomb theft. I can't draw a as complex and as great a counterintelligence threat in our history of you know getting somebody elected president. And then two, doing that, not only to understand what happened, but to figure out, okay, well, how do we stop this from happening again? I mean, I, I don't, we kind of had a perfect storm. I hope we'd naturally just never get there again. But, you know, what are the things we can do, you know, other than the straightforward things about, you know, being more financial disclosures, being more transparent and sort of historical records and things to throw that open. But are there things that we could and should be doing to protect the United States in 24 and 28 and 32 and, and going off into the future? So kind of two different slight answers. Mm. So um, we're wrapping up. I, I'd like to ask you this, though. You know, you, you've given so much to the country. And at the end of your time at the FBI, uh, I mean, again, the book is just riveting for anyone that is interested in that time in our history, which is so important, but also how the inner workings of, of the FBI uh, work. It, it, I would recommend this book strongly to anyone. It's very well written. But for you now, what's next? What's the next thing for you in your life? 
That's a great question. Um, so I'm at a, you know, get the, get the book done and launched and out. And now with the kind of knowing what the administration and kind of political dynamic and, and picture is in the U.S., um, I'm trying broadly to decide between two paths. And one is a much more sort of public facing path, whether that's going and, you know, working in a policy sort of um, job at a, at a think tank and looking at some of the, you know, taking my knowledge about disinformation and misinformation and foreign intelligence services and applying that in sort of an academic environment to inform the debate. And the kind of opposite side of that is going and doing, you know, kind of more traditional work that people who, you know, I spent a career essentially developing an ability to look at complex systems, identify risk and identify, you know, gaps and things that cause problem and either to look retroactively and say, here's where the problem occurred and why and how you fix it or prospectively to go in and say, you've got vulnerabilities here and here and here. And, you know, organizations need that. And particularly in a, you know, complex global environment, there's, there's a need for that. So they are rewarding for different reasons. Um, and so that's a, that's a very, broad and non-specific answer to, uh, I am actively looking right now. And of course, doing that in the context of a COVID economy, um, with a certain amount of political notoriety, certainly for 30% of the population makes that a, an interesting, uh, an interesting, uh, endeavor. Well, you're incredibly smart. You will, I guarantee you will do well in either of those paths that you choose. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that, uh, I would say that we'd all be better off if we didn't know who you were and you were still at the FBI <laughs> working counterintelligence and that's what, but I, I, I do wish you well in your future. And you know something, I, I hope you make some money on the book, do some speaking. <laughs> there is nothing wrong now that you're out of government service with making some money. You're, you're talking to a couple of capitalists here. And I, I think you're, you're as entitled as anybody more so for your service to the country. Um, and it's been a real pleasure meeting you and talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, it was great to meet both of you. The book is Compromised by Peter Strzok. Peter, thanks so much for the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great to talk with you. So, Ed, uh, I thought that was a fascinating conversation. The the thing is, and this is what I I want to talk about in this wrap-up. You know, our podcast is called The Head and the Heart for a reason. It's designed to make people realize that we all make irrational, emotional decisions. And we backfill that with reasoning that makes us feel like we're more rational or objective than we actually are. And, you know, at the end of that conversation, for me, there was a certain amount of sadness because it's such an example. You know, he's so smart and so talented and we're not stronger as a country by not having him serve at the FBI. And yet because he became politicized, uh, there was a fervor that was created that demanded his ouster. And I just, I think that we're so poorly served when we, when we react like that. Yeah. I mean, we got into it a little bit with respect to bias versus objectivity. And, you know, he's a perfect example of, you know, that your opponents, even when you're trying to be objective or even when you are being objective on a topic, your opponents are going to accuse you of bias as a way to dismiss your point of view or to weaken your argument. And if you reveal something about yourself that shows that you did have a pre-existing belief or a bias about something, um, that's going to be exploited. You know, um, it was certainly weaponized against him. Yeah, it is going to be exploited, but, but we're not better off for the exploitation of it. No, I mean, look, 
this is just my personal opinion after speaking to him and also of course following the story very closely i think that he did act objectively you know these investigations uh, against donald trump as politically charged as they were by all accounts were properly predicated now that's not to say the fbi didn't make some mistakes they clearly did uh there's there's there was a few things that can be rightly criticized that should not have happened and hopefully won't happen again but the underlying basis for them taking a look under the hood of what was going on with the campaign was properly predicated i agree with that well uh this is the head and the heart this is perry rogers and this is Ed Borgato. You can listen to us on Podcast One, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter if you're on Twitter. We're at head underscore heart underscore pod. Hey.